Rochester Church of Christ is called to live God's gospel, truth, and love with the world so that we all may find life together in God. Our hope is that this message will share that gospel, truth, and love in a way that will bless you, enrich you, and better equip you as a disciple. Good morning. I am thankfully joined again today by New Testament scholar, professor, and author, and he's also my friend, and that's the coolest part, Greg Stevenson. In addition to being exceptionally gifted and well-studied, Greg literally wrote the book on how to interpret the book of Revelation. His book is called A Slaughtered Lamb. It is phenomenal, uh, and we are running through it together in our class on Sunday morning. You may hear a bit more about that in a moment. Uh, But thanks for joining me, Greg. Uh, You are just in time for lots of fun. Let me catch you up. Last week, I informed them that the church has three enemies in the book of Revelation. And those enemies are the devil, false teachers, and those got like, yes, yes, yes. And then I said, and civil government. And the yes was not as excited. So you're here so that I can pass the buck. All right, that's that. The, it's going to pick up speed right here. Uh, I want to share the blame. Now, I, I do want to start with this reminder, though. Okay, that the literature in the Book of Revelation is highly symbolic. All right, last week, for instance, last week was wild. Okay, if, we, if you were reading along with us, last week was wild. There was there was, um, and and that I was fired up, but it was wild even without that. Like, I mean, if you were just reading the passage, we were talking about a dragon trying to eat a baby and a pregnant woman running through the desert, escaping a flood by flying on wings. Like, all of that before we even got to an all-out war among angels. All right, Revelation 12 is an action movie par excellence. And the point is not, I want to be clear about this, it's, it's apocalyptic literature, it's highly symbolic. The point is not that we are waiting to see a literal dragon with scales and wings and horns and all that. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are saying is that we absolutely believe that there is an enemy to God's kingdom that is tormenting God's people. And last week we saw that a war took place in heaven. We saw a cosmic battle. And this week we're going to see the same battle from another angle. Down here in our world, the earthly battle. And the first thing you'll notice in this text that we're about to read together, you can can open your Bible to Revelation 12. We're going to start in the very end of that and then read through chapter 13. The first thing you'll notice is that the dragon doesn't do war directly. Rather, the dragon is going to call out two monsters, these two beasts that will come and do his fighting for him. And those two, the dragon and the two beasts, form this kind of unholy trinity. And they'll occasionally do things that mimic the trinity. In Revelation 12, we have revealed for us the dragon who is the enemy that has declared war on God's faithful witnesses. And in Revelation 13, we find out that the beasts are the weapons used to wage that war. Now, today we have a longer reading than usual. But I do want to go ahead and read the chapter so that we can set the stage for what it is we'll be talking about. It's our tradition to stand during the reading of the Word of God. So, if you will, stand. 
And I'm going to start in Revelation chapter 12, the last verse, verse 17, and then I'm going to read chapter 13. It says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to the testimony about Jesus, that's us. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea, and it had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and his great authority. And one of the heads on the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but that fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast and all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and all its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth, and it ordered them to set up an image in honor of the first beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or is the number of its name. And this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for its number, it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Heavenly Father, give us wisdom today. Give us discernment. God, help us to hear your word and let us be faithful. God, let us be attentive. And God, we ask that we can hear you as you proclaim the gospel to us. Speak now, Father, for your children are listening. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, <clears throat> so we got a lot to cover, Greg. Yeah. That, was, that was serious business right there. So I was reading through your book on, on this section, all right? And you discussed this section. You wrote this sentence. You said, commentators almost unanimously identify the two beasts of Revelation 13 
as a representation of Roman imperial power and authority. Okay, so the beasts that we just read about are Roman imperial power and authority. All right, elaborate on that and tell us why. And maybe for me, explain it like you were talking to a fifth grader. (laughs) That's a tall order, but yeah, we'll see. Um, Well, to start with, you know, again, we have to remember that John is writing this book to Christians who are living in the Roman Empire. And it's written to help them deal with the problems and the issues and the struggles that they're facing in that context. And so when John's audience would hear about this first beast that comes out of the sea, it's something that they would have recognized. You know, back in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a very similar vision. He talks about uh, four beasts that come up out of the sea, one of which looks like a lion, one of which looks like a bear, the third looks like a leopard, and the fourth has ten horns. And then Daniel tells us in verse 17 that these four beasts represent four kingdoms. So he he instructs us on the fact that the image or the symbol of a beast is a representation of some kind of kingdom or imperial authority. So in Revelation 13, when John says that he sees a beast coming up out of the sea that is part lion, part bear, part leopard, and has ten horns, what John has done is taken the four beasts of Daniel 7 and combined them into one beast. Now the question is, why would he do that? Well, the people of God have a long history of being oppressed by foreign nations. You know, nations that act monstrously with respect to God's people. It begins with Egypt oppressing the ancient Israelites. But then it's followed by the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century that destroyed the Kingdom of Israel. And then the Babylonian Empire in the 6th century that destroyed the Kingdom of Judah. And then the Seleucid Empire in the 2nd century BC that outlawed Judaism and persecuted the people of God. And now this pattern, John tells us, is continuing with the Roman Empire, perhaps the most monstrous one of all. So essentially with his depiction of this beast, John is saying that the Roman Empire is simply a continuation of and culmination of everything that has come before. That it's simply another kingdom in a long line of kingdoms that have dared to stand in opposition to the people of God. So essentially through these two beasts, John is presenting us with a symbol of the monstrous nature of institutionalized evil. All right, so here's what I got. I got the first beast looks almost identical to the beast in Daniel 7, just kind of all combined. And the beast in Daniel 7 represent several nations that ruled over the world, the nations of Babylon, Persia, Medes, Seleucids. Uh, And in John's day, that institutional power in opposition to God's kingdom was the Roman Empire. Okay, so as we apply this text today, I want to I be clear. We listen to a text like this, and John is talking about the Roman Empire. Okay, John is, John is talking about the empire in his day that is standing against the people of God. But it's important to recognize that because of its connection to Daniel 7, it's, it, it's not only the Roman Empire, right? That it connects with all of those kingdoms that would stand and oppress the people of God throughout history. And so this is every expression of human government that claims authority that rightly belongs only to God. Okay, here's this quote from a guy named Daryl Johnson. 
John is opening up for us a sobering reality of the present. Governments which step out from under the rule of God do not become more divine. They become demonic. Then he's going to go even another step because that one made sense. They step out from the rule of God and they become demonic. Okay, that made sense. But pay attention to this next one. Governments that exalt humanity as the measure of all things do not become more humane. They become more bestial. Or as one pastor has said, it power that no longer exercises under God seeks to play God. And so here is the payoff. When I said civil governments, <coughs> when I mentioned civil governments, civil governments are shown to be a, a way that the dragon wages war against the people of God when they exalt themselves and demand worship and devotion and allegiance above Christ. And when civil governments do that, they become enemies of God's kingdom. And for us reading today, we need to not be blind to the fact that this can and sometimes has included and does include our own civil government. Yeah, you know, people often, when they talk about Revelation, they'll talk about the beast in Revelation. The fact is, though, in Revelation 13, it actually introduces us to two different beasts. And the first beast that it presents, the one that comes out of the sea, is a, typically taken as a representation of the power of Rome as embodied by the Roman emperor. You know, this beast is described as having ten horns. And horns typically were a symbol of power, uh, because powerful animals like rams usually have horns. And so that symbol emphasizes the power that the Roman emperor wields. This beast also has ten crowns on its head identifying the royal and imperial authority of the emperor. We're also told that the whole world worships the beast, which was likely a reference to the imperial cult, which was the state religion of the Roman Empire that focused on the worship of the emperor as God. And we're also told that this beast has blasphemous names written on its heads, which is likely a reference to the titles that were often used by the Roman emperor. Titles such as Lord, Savior, and even Son of God. Uh, titles that become blasphemous because the emperor is claiming a status that belongs only to God in Christ. I notice in verse 8 how the people begin to worship the beast. Right? That, that the purpose of the beast is, is not merely gaining political power. Okay, that's, that's not the end is to see if the beast can gain political power. There's a point to why it's happening. It's employing that power as a means of capturing the worship of the world. It's employing the power as a means of capturing the allegiance and the attention of the men and women of God, diverting them away from the worship of God. Because if our loyalty can be moved from Jesus, our Lord and Savior, onto the state who cannot ultimately help us, then the dragon wins. If the, dragon can, if the beast can shift our loyalty and our allegiance off of Christ onto anything else, the dragon wins. And, 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 and I'm not... 
when I hear people taking the opportunity in pulpits <clears throat> that rather than pointing to Jesus, rather than preaching the gospel, when I see pulpits across this city and this state and this nation that are meant to point to Jesus, pointing you instead to the state, I know that the dragon is winning. And I don't want to tell you this to tell you there's no hope. If anyone has reason for hope, it's us. But I am saying what I want Christians to do is be real committed to being discerning about where we place our hope. You can probably tell already that it's my job this morning to explain things. It's Adam's job to preach. <laughs> Which he's doing a great job of. Now, um, if we think about, okay, what about this second beast? Well, most Christians in the first century would never have come in contact with the Roman emperor. They would never have had to deal with the emperor in person. But the Roman Empire was a vast empire that was divided up into provinces, much like you know, our country is divided up into states. And whenever Christians fell afoul of the law, it was often the local officials in those provinces that they would have been brought before and they would have come into conflict with. And that's where the second beast in chapter 13 comes in. You know, we're told that this second beast is clearly a subordinate of the first beast and one who exercises all of the authority of the first beast on its behalf. And most scholars agree and argue that this second beast likely represents some kind of Roman provincial authority. You know, local authorities like a Roman governor uh, that would have governed in the provinces. And these are the people that the Christians would have had direct conflict with. And Revelation says that this person, uh, this second beast, makes people worship the first beast and even orders an image of the emperor to be brought in and then kills those who refuse to worship that image. Well, that is exactly the kind of thing that Roman provincial governors might do. In fact, in the early second century AD, in fact, just a couple decades after the book of Revelation uh, or was possibly written, there was a provincial Roman governor named Pliny who had a problem on his hands. Uh, a lot of the Christians in his province were being accused of crimes and brought before him for trial, and he had no idea what to do about it. Uh, because being a Christian at that time was not illegal uh, at that point in history, and there had been no precedent set for how to deal with Christians. So what Pliny did is he wrote a letter to the emperor, uh, Emperor Trajan at that time, asking for advice on how to handle trials of Christians. And in writing this letter, he explained what he had been doing up to this point. And he said, well, the first task I had was to identify whether these people were actually, in fact, Christians or not. And Pliny wrote that he had been told that genuine Christians refused to worship anyone other than their God. So to put this to the test and to, to determine who's a Christian or not, he ordered that the image of the emperor be brought in, and then the people that were on trial before him, before him, he would command them to bow down and worship the image of the emperor. And if they were willing to do that, he set them free and let them go. If they refused to do it, he gave them a second chance. If they refused again, he gave them a third chance. If they continued to refuse to worship the image of the emperor, then he would order their execution. 
But the reason he explains was not because they had done anything wrong, but simply because they were too stubborn to follow his orders. Well, you know what Pliny does there is almost identical to what the second beast is described as doing in Revelation 13. You know, in Revelation 13 with these two beasts, what John is telling his audience and telling us is that Rome is not the benevolent savior and benefactor that it likes to present itself as, but that it is in fact a monstrous beast determined to devour them. So the second beast has the main purpose of getting folks to worship the first beast. That's the job. The second beast wants people to worship the first beast. The second beast wants people to trust the political power that has moved out from under God. And he's going to perform great signs. He's, he's going to make signs and start a fan club. No, uh, he, he, he loves the first beast. He wants you to love the first beast. He makes an image of the first beast and even gives breath to it. Okay, this is that false trinity I was talking about. You notice that the first beast had the wound that was healed. The, the mimicry of resurrection. Here's the second beast that has this mimicry of creating an image and breathing life into it. Even further, that second beast is going to make it hard for Christians who won't bow down to the first beast. He's going to persecute them. He's going to kill them. It says in particular he's going to place his mark on them. And even makes it difficult for them to do business unless they take the mark of the beast. But, but what, God, what, what, what the beast is doing, what the second beast is doing, doesn't always happen through persecution. Sometimes it's an, it's an encouragement simply to compromise. Right? You don't, I don't have to persecute you. Just take the mark so that you can do business. Don't you want to do well for yourself and your family? Right? So it's not, it's not necessarily persecuting you to the point of giving up. It might simply be getting you to compromise so that you can, you, you can participate in what we're doing over here. Now in Revelation 16, 19, and 20, this beast is going to be called the false prophet. So that's why we're hearing this religious and institutional power that's doing the will of the dragon. You see, true prophets lead people to the presence and worship of the living God. False prophets lead people to worship something else. And a lot of times that something else happens to be the state. You see, the goal is to get us to put our hope in human institutions and means. The goal is to get us embrace, to embrace compromise with the empire. All right. So, Greg, when I told people we're going to be studying Revelation, folks got excited because they like when we do hard things. But, but they started asking me the same, and I, the question I got most by a mile, same question, you ready? So you're going to talk about the mark of the beast? Man, we, you start talking about the mark of the beast, people get excited. Folks start to listen up. They're like, and, 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 and I had a few, I had more than a few people who were like, is it the vaccine, Pastor? <laughs> I do not believe it's the vaccine. I, I believe it also meant something in their time and day. All right. Um, <clears throat> but so that I can be assured in this, Greg, what can you tell us about the mark of the beast? <laughs> yeah, this is where it's become abundantly clear I was only invited to do the heavy lifting. <laughs> See, I'm dumb, but I'm not so dumb. <laughs> 
Well, first off, um, it's important to notice from the note off the bat that everybody in the book of Revelation has a mark on them. Uh, Revelation is a war story, and war only knows two sides. There's All right, that was really good. I want you to say it again. All right. Yeah, Revelation with the Revelation. Because you said, you said that I was doing the preaching, but this right here is preaching. All right? Revelation says, it's important to note that everyone, mm -hmm. go ahead and say it again. Yeah, everyone in Revelation has a mark. Uh, everybody is marked in this entire book. And again, that's because it's a war story where you have two sides, you know, the allies and the enemies, us versus them. And so the marks in Revelation identify which side one belongs to, right? They identify a person's allegiance. And so everybody in Revelation either has the mark of the lamb on them or they have the mark of the beast, right? But everybody is marked belonging to one camp or the other. Now in verse 17, we're told that the mark of the beast is, quote, the name of the beast or the number of his name. And then in verse 18, John adds to this, this calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Now, on the one hand, that number, uh, 666, has a symbolic aspect, as all the numbers in Revelation do. And in this case, it has something to do with the fact probably that the number seven in the ancient world almost universally in all ancient cultures represented the idea of perfection or completeness. And so 666, you know, six being short of seven, falling short of that, uh, could be a reference to the imperfection of the beast, uh, the fallenness of the beast. On the other hand, though, the fact that John also says it's necessary to calculate the number of the beast and that this number identifies a name also points us to another aspect from the ancient world. And that is the ancient Jews and Greeks did not have their own numbering system. So what they did was they used their alphabet as their numbering system. And so every letter of the alphabet was assigned a numerical value. So if we think about that in terms of English, you know, A would be one, B would be two, C would be three, and so forth. And so they would use their letters to count and to add. And this was something that children were taught in elementary school. You know, they were taught to take numbers and turn them into letters and letters into numbers and, you know, play mathematical games with this as a way of learning their alphabet and learning math. And so one of the things children would have to do is like take their name and calculate it by turning it into a number. For instance, um, my name, Gregory Stevenson, when calculated in Greek comes out to 1,571. Adam Hill adds up to 116. I was, <laughs> that says nothing about you. Well, you got like a thousand more letters than me. That's not fair. There you go. And two of mine are A's. <laughs> I was really hoping that Keith Huey's name would come out to 666, because that would be awesome. <laughs> but even when I threw in his middle name, it only came to 627. <laughs> but, but that's essentially what John is doing here in Revelation 13. You know, he's telling us that this number identifies a person. And then if we want to know who that person is, well, we're going to have to calculate it. We're going to have to find the name that adds up to 666. Now, there's a whole lot more that can be said about this. We could go into this in much deeper, and we will. Uh, you know, Adam and myself and Keith Huey teach a class on Revelation that meets after services. And in two or three weeks, I think it is, we're going to be talking about this text again, and we'll go into this in much deeper 
uh, detail there. So that's your advertisement to stay for that cl class if you uh, want to learn more. But basically, John has told us who the beast is. All right? He's told us it's, it's an emperor or some Roman official whose name adds up to 666 when converted to numbers. The problem is, it's very easy to take a person's name and convert it to a number. It's much harder to go the other way, you know, to take the number and then figure out who the person is that they have in mind, which is why this number has caused so much confusion uh, throughout the years. Um, you know, we know that John is likely identifying some Roman official. We're just not sure which one, and many, many solutions have been proposed. Uh, for instance, it's been pointed out that the name Nero Caesar, when written in Hebrew, adds up to 666. But others have argued that when you take the official title, uh, the official abbreviated title of the Roman Emperor Domitian and put it in Greek, it adds up to 666. You know, so those are some of the possibilities, but there are many others uh, that people have explored. The point here though for us is that with this number, John is not trying to identify some figure from our time today. You know, whether Barack Obama or Donald Trump as a and many others that have been claimed. Uh, he's identifying for his audience the person who is the source of much of the trouble and struggles that they are facing. Another interesting note about the mark is where it's put. It says that we are marked, it says, it says that people are marked with the mark of the beast on their hand and on their forehead, right? Hand and forehead. And we say, well, what? What, what's that about? Why is it hand and forehead? And, and you may, if you're a student of Scripture, you may recognize the, the, the importance of being marked on your hand and forehead. If you're, if you're familiar with the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, O hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? And he tells them, I want you to remember this. I want you to write it down. I want you to pass it on to your kids. I want you to recite it while you're walking. I want you to put it on your doorposts. I want you to, to write it on your forehead. I want you to put it on your hand. Foreheads and hands. Okay? That G.K. Beale has said the forehead represents ideological commitment and the hand is the practical outworking of that commitment. In other words, the forehead and the hand mean ideology and action. Ideology and action. Okay? That this is internal character made manifest behavior. And if, and, if, and if that's what this is, if it's not, if it's not some tattoo that we're, and I don't think it is because I think the dragon's smarter than that. Come get this tattoo, otherwise we're not going to let you participate in society. Well, that's an easy one for the church to say, no, thank you. We saw it coming. I, I, don't, I don't think the dragon's being that Simple. What I wonder is that with this forehead and hand business, with this ideology and action business, I wonder if some of us are already living out the mark of the beast. That the mark of the beast is us not being serious about holiness. The mark of the beast is us being comfortable with sin, is holding hands with sin, not being serious about the kingdom of God. Now, Kenny, I want to go ahead and ask you all to come back up. <laughs> Here's what I'm convinced of. You don't fight the beasts by studying the beasts. 
All right, I'm going to say that again because I think it, I think it was a little too fast. And, and I know we got some Packers fans, and they're having, they're having to be here while their team is playing in London already. And I know the sacrifice they're making is great. I know it. All right? I'm not mocking that. I'm, I'm, I'm recognizing it. All right? Y'all are here, and I appreciate that. Us Lions fans don't have to make that kind of sacrifice very often. But I'm going to say it again just so that we catch it. I don't don't think we fight beasts by studying the beasts. Rather, I think we fight beasts by studying and knowing and worshiping the real thing. Not the imitation. I don't need to learn all the fakes. I need to spend time with the real thing so that whenever I'm encountering something that's fake, I can immediately see the difference. All right, that, that's what we're doing. We need to know the real thing so well we can spot a fake. When we're talking about counterfeit money, those people that are trying to track down counterfeit bills are not spending all their time trying to figure out all the different ways you could possibly counterfeit something. They're trying to make sure that they can identify the real thing so well that the moment a fake comes into their presence, they can say, that's not the real one. And that's where the people of God need to be. We should know the nature and the character and the majesty of Jesus so well that all imitators and fakes are easily spotted and rejected. Regardless of what kind of presentation it comes in. Whether it comes from the dragon himself, a false teacher or even through the civil government, we can spot a fake when we see it. Because we worship Jesus, and that's where we place our hope. Amen? Amen. If you don't know him, I want to encourage you to know him. If you don't know him, I want you to give your life to him and be baptized into Christ. If you don't know him, I want you to sign up and enjoy his army. I want you to join it, and I want you to say, I'm going to walk with the Lamb in spite of whatever else is coming and promising me hope because I know where my hope is from and I know what's true and I'm going to follow what is true in spite of everything around me that may be an imitation. Let's stand. We're going to worship together but I want you if, you, if you haven't given your life to the true King, Jesus, I want you to recognize that there are, there, there, there's a lot of ways that the dragon is trying to deceive us. Go ahead and stand up. There are a lot of ways the dragon's trying to deceive us. But there is one truth with a capital T, and his name is Jesus. Amen? 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 Amen. Amen. Let's worship him. Heavenly Father, I pray that this message has been a blessing to those listening. I pray that you would continue to work in our lives in ways that are evident and easily seen. Most of all, I pray thank you for loving us and choosing us. We don't deserve it, but you are so good and so faithful, and so true. We thank you for your Spirit and your Son. May we grow in them to your glory, Father. In Christ's holy name, amen.